You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Thanks for gathering with us this morning. We have a special guest preacher this morning that's going to be teaching us. Uh, to give you some context, though, uh, about a year ago, a uh, year, year and a couple of months, one of my prayers to start the year in January of 2021. Do you guys feel like your time is all just permanently messed up? I feel that. It's never going back. But January 2021, one of my prayers I had for us would be as a church to increase our partnership with gospel workers in our city. That who are people in our city, as we think of ourselves as a, one church among many that are doing faithful work, in our city, and often churches can be very tribal. We have a tribalism where, hey, my church is better than your church, or we're, we're really being effective and faithful, but you're not. And let me just say this, just to put this out there, especially as a missional community church, we can have a sense of pride or arrogance that comes up, of like, oh, well, we're doing it the right way and somebody else isn't. And just hear this from the front, that is not at all our heart. And there's many faithful churches that have a variety of models and ways that they're being faithful in our city. And so the vision would be that we actually partner with churches across our city so that Jesus might be displayed in this beautiful mosaic way. And so this morning we have one of those gospel partners who is doing great work, him and his family. Rosho and his family are doing great work in Redemption Alhambra, which is way out in the West Valley. They had to drive like three hours to get here. West Valley is like part of a different country pretty much. And we all know East Valley is better. Sorry, sorry guys. But what? Ken, where's Kenny at? He would be really upset right now. Right here. <laughs> He's offended. Uh, but I just want to uh, welcome him. He's going to be preaching us in our series, Letters to the Church. Uh, he's already getting the full experience. We have trains and some, some friends experiencing homelessness, and the police are checking in on us as well. So we're getting, and the wind. It's a great experience you're getting out here. We're just trying to model the early church and the conditions they were in. Uh, but let me pray for him and for us, and he's going to lead us this morning. Uh, maybe share a little bit about himself and the ministry he's doing and also lead us from God's Word in the next letter we've been looking at in this Letters to the Church series. So let me pray, and then, Rosh, you can come on up. Real quick, before I pray, let me also introduce, his, his wife's name is Wanda. Their kids are wandering around here as well. But also, also, one of my favorite people on planet Earth is here, and he's sitting right over there. His name is Biscuit. And when I first heard that his name was Biscuit, I thought he was joking with me, but he's actually really serious about that. Uh, you should get to know him. If I gave him the mic right now, we'd probably have, like, the best 20 minutes of your life that happened. We'll do that afterwards, but get to know him as well. He's hanging out with us this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are King and Lord and the great shepherd of our entire citywide church. That as much as tribalism and polarization has brought disunity and division and divide among our country, right now in Phoenix, across the valley, there are faithful churches, both big and small, different models, different traditions that are working together to see you displayed, Jesus, beautifully in our city. We're thankful we get to participate in that work and we get to partner with other workers in this gospel story that you've given us. Uh, would you bless Rosto and his family this morning? Would he equip us well from your word? And thank you for the ministry and the work that you're doing through and in him and through the church Redemption Alhambra. I'm just thankful for the way we get to, to be together as your church. Uh, in this time and place. And in Jesus' name, amen. 
give a give a oof, uh, give a hand to, to to Sir Charlie, for me. Sometimes I'll call him Sir Charlie. Sometimes I'll call him St. Charles. Just whatever I'm feeling. How you guys doing this morning? It's great to be with you all this morning, all the way from Alhambra. We had to wake up at 4 a.m. in order to make it on time. I'm just joking. Um, so like Charlie has already said, my name is Rosto Joassin. My wife is over there with our four-month-old. The last time we were here, um, it was just our two children. And so, I don't know, we are multiplying every single time we come here. And so, um, we are extremely grateful for this community. Um, Charlie and I, we've been friends for the past, I don't even know, what, two and a half years or so. Um, he hooked me up with a job. It was great. Um, and then I went into full-time ministry, doing what I do now. Um, but a lot of what I do with the youth ministry, I'm, I'm a youth pastor at Redemption Alhambra. A lot of what I do there um, kind of comes out of conversations between me and Charlie um, and coffee shops. Uh, and, and, and I just love what you guys do here at Missio, uh, the way that you guys function in your communities and all that stuff. I just steal all the good stuff and just read, like produce that. Uh, with our own little Alhambra flair with our youth. And so um, a little bit about me and my family and the work that we do. Um, I'm a youth pastor over at Redemption Alhambra, but also uh, my wife and I, we will call ourselves urban youth missionaries. And so if you kind of think like, uh, what, what is an, an urban youth missionary? Essentially, we just contextualize the gospel. We go into these areas in the urban places and we connect with students. And so that's what we do with the bulk of our time, my wife and I and, and, and Mr. Biscuit over there. Uh, we are partnered with an organization called AZ Reach. Uh, it's, a, it's a partnership that allows us to be able to go onto school campuses and connect with students as mentors. And so um, we get to go through a curriculum and build relationships with them. And essentially what we hope is that out of that time spent with them, um, they will come to, know, to, to, to come to know Christ. And so we do that. Um, I also run a, I don't want to call it a basketball program, but we have a gym space at our church. And every uh, Saturday night after youth, uh, we open it up for all of the youth in our community uh, to come and be a part. So these are kids that are not a part of our churches or our church, uh, but they find safety in, in, in the gym and playing. And so me and a couple of other homies um, at the church, we, you know, we pray with them, we fellowship with them, we get to connect with them, um, and it's a very sweet, sweet and special time. And so that's a little bit of what we get to do. Um, we love what we get to do. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been a joy. So if you have your Bibles, if you're following along this morning, um, open up to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to be covering verses 12 through 17. So from my understanding, we, or we, we you all, and I'm just joining in on the fun, have been going through the, the letters to uh, the, the churches, the seven churches. Um, when Charlie hit me up about preaching at Missio, um, I automatically said, yes, All right, I love this community. I love being here. But then he shot me the text message of the, the, the passage. And I was like, no, absolutely not. 
right? Uh, one of the reasons why that was my first bit and my first, you know, kind of response is because Revelation is just kind of that book that you're just like, you, you just kind of want to pretend that it's not there. Um, I don't know about you guys, but you may share kind of this common uh, upbringing. But me, before I became a Christian, kind of my first exposure to like the Bible was the, the Left Behind series. If you guys watched any of those movies. Uh, and, and essentially that's kind of like action packed with like a lot of fear and like if I don't follow Jesus, like I'm going to be here and it's going to be a whole bunch of turmoil and all this stuff. And so my understanding of like God and the Bible was kind of contextualized to see God as this, this one that only casts judgment. And so as I became a Christian, I got involved with the church. And on Wednesday nights, we will go through these deep Bible studies and we will go through the book of Revelation. And then the pastor would talk about these red moons and all these other things that were just very spooky and scary. And it just kind of made me withdraw of just like, yo, I, I don't really, this is kind of scary. This is some spooky stuff. But here's the thing, over the course, and as I kind of matured in my faith and grew and kind of got some theological like seminary under my belt, I began to kind of see, uh, 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 I got introduced of a new lens of seeing scripture which you guys are very common and, and familiar with, but it, it's engaging the, the, the book of the Bible as one story. And when I did that, what it, what it helped me to do is kind of see God as a God from creation, this God who was very intentional about all the things he had put in place. And we see a God who is uh, loving and caring and very detailed, uh, very resourceful as he is uh, cultivating and, and, and creating culture. Right. And, and, and then we see the whole entire story. But through like after the fall and all of that, we see a God who is pursuing creation. He's pursuing uh, man and woman. He is trying to reconcile all things uh, to himself. And we see a God who is very tender and very uh, pursuing and, 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 and loving. And so this is why I would say that context matters. Context matters because if, if, if we read through the book of Revelations with this context of uh, God is this God of just only judgment and wrath, when we read these particular letters, we'll see it through that lens. But when we see uh, God as the God who is loving, pursuing, what we see is that there, these particular letters are a, a, an address uh, out of love. And so that's the lens in which I want us to be able to enter into as he is addressing the church of Pergamum. And so we're going to read verses 12 through 17. Now, I know you guys have been standing and sitting and standing and getting a little workout. Um, at Alhambra, we like to stand up as we read the word of God. I'm not sure if that's what you guys do here. But if you would join me, if you're able and standing up, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. By the way, um, is, is there any way I can get a bottle of water? Okay, appreciate that, Charlie. Sir Charles. Wow. Goodness, this is... Thank you so much, brother. Well, I need a squid of it right now. Full service. Look at that. This is why I love this community. There you go. Thank you. You're welcome. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who, is the sh uh, who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we thank you so much just for your grace and your mercy, Lord. I pray, Lord, as you said at the end of that, um, that we will have ears to hear what you are addressing to our hearts. And God, we thank you just for all that you have done and how you've continuously pursued us. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a, there's a common kind of rhythm that we see as as. Uh, Jesus is addressing through John uh, these seven churches. The rhythm is uh, Jesus would address this church. Then he would essentially describe himself. And then he will go on talking about the condition of the church. Then he will call for a period of repentance. And then he will talk about a reward at the end. And so this is the kind of like flow and theme um, of each of these particular uh, letters. And so in verse 12, what we see is Jesus addresses himself to the church. He says, uh, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the, sh uh, the sharp two-edged sword. So the church of Pergamum, it was located in a highly religious uh, Roman culture. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the issue with this particular church is that over time, compromise began to settle into this church, leading people away with in, into false teachings. So when the Lord kind of presents himself or he speaks into this particular situation, he, refer, he refers to himself or describes himself as one who is holding a sharp two-edged sword. If you know about this weapon, this is a weapon that was typically used in battle. It was a weapon that was sharp on two sides. Despite where you kind of sling it or throw it, uh, it would cut and it would cut very deep. And so this is the imagery in which Jesus is, is referring to in order to kind of reflect or describe himself. And when he uses this imagery, he's not actually talking about him going to battle and waging war with this uh, weapon, but he's referring to his, his words. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the writer, he writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
So although Jesus is using this particular language to describe himself to the church, he's fully aware that this battle that's happening, this battle of evil that is happening in Pergamum is not one of flesh and blood, but with rulers and authorities of this dark age. This is a spiritual battle in which they are going through, and this is why Jesus is using his word. But why is Jesus' word referred to as a two-edged uh, sword? Well, first and foremost, the word of God, it cuts through all spiritually false teaching and worldly lies. And this is the issue that is happening, at, happening in Pergamum, is that there is these uh, false teachings that have entered in. The word of God, it separates and clearly reveals truth from error. The word of God, it cuts deep, revealing sin and bringing spiritual healing and life to those who believe. The word of God, it accomplishes all that it sets to, uh, all that it is designed and intended uh, to accomplish when used correctly. The word of God is all powerful and it can cut through a spiritual heart of stone. So very much like the creation account, Jesus' words, what it does is that it brings forth life. The Lord's desire here is not to punish people or, 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 or uh, to, to, to destroy them, but instead he is trying to uh, enter into this community as being influenced by the culture around him, and he wants to confront them and bring truth to these people. He's calling them to repent that they may have life and life abundantly. I want you to kind of reflect on the day in which the Lord started speaking to you through his word, right? What did it, what it feel like? What did it, what did it, did it hurt? Did it was like, was it that like that good hurt? There's a particular pastor, he, he says this and I, and I really appreciated it. He says, often people wonder how the preacher's message can be so relevant to their life. They sometimes honestly wonder if the preacher has inside information on their life. But it's not necessarily the preacher at all. It's the sharpness of the word of God delivering the message in just the right place. I remember when I first came to Christ, when I started reading the Bible on my own, it was like that. Any of you guys like work out? Like you work out and then like it hurts, but it's like that good hurt. Like you like you just... You just feel good. It was kind of like that. As I was reading the scriptures, my sin and all the darkness that I have been uh, uh, enjoying, it's like I'm, I'm being confronted. But it was this beautiful reality that like this exposure, this, this reveal of all of my sin, it was, it was good because I was walking out of darkness and walking into light and freedom. And this is essentially what the Lord or the word of God does for us. It cuts through all the lies we've consumed and it reveals truth, bringing uh, his, his word brings forth life. In verse uh, 13, it shows us Jesus beginning his statements of the condition of the church. Verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. As I was meditating on this particular verse, there was this sense of comfort that just kind of came over me 
as the Lord speaks, he's acknowledging the realities in which this church is going through. He's acknowledging their current situation. To describe their particular situation, he describes it like living in Satan's throne, almost to say that this is the peak or the pinnacle of kind of like where sin and darkness is residing. I'm not sure if many of you guys relate, but sometimes we can feel like as if the Lord doesn't see us in these dark and these very difficult places. A few weeks ago, me and Biscuit, we go to this school called Cornerstone. There was one of our students who kind of revealed, like, as he's in the midst of people, he always feels as if he's isolated or left alone. People don't see him. And many of you guys, you may relate this way with, with the Lord. You work in spaces. You will probably call your workplace Satan's throne. Right? It's very maybe toxic and it's difficult and you're trying to live faithfully, but you're just unsure if, you, if the Lord is actually seeing the difficulty in which you are facing. But I want to encourage you that the same way that the Lord sees Pergamum, he sees you. He sees the difficulty and the challenges, the fight to remain faithful. He is the one that is actually keeping you. Jesus uses this metaphor of Satan's throne to describe the condition in which they are living in. And at that time, Pergamum was, was super highly religious. It was the home of pagan worship. There were temples that were dedicated to worshiping Roman emperors. There were altars that were built for Greek gods. Just imagine being a Christian in that particular time, walking by and seeing all of these uh, um, idols that are placed in front of everybody. This environment that they dwelled in was an environment that the Lord found it fit for them to worship in. The Lord wanted them to be a faithful community unto God in this particular place. Something that we have to remember that God's sovereignty, it rules even in the places that we don't want to be in. God's sovereignty, it rules even in the darkest places. For us, this can be a workplace or a stage of life that we're finding very difficult or a difficult family dynamic. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. But God sees us and he calls us to be faithful. It reminds me in the book of Jeremiah, if you guys are familiar, uh, the people of Israel are kind of in, in, in uh, exile in Babylon. And God doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to just like pluck you out and just give you some freedom. Instead, he says, no, hunker down, settle down, plant roots, establish, marry. You're going to be here for a while, but I'm calling you to be faithful. This wasn't the case with the church of Pergamum. Although they held fast to the name of Jesus and did not deny their faith, compromise began to creep in to the church, and Jesus addresses it. As we look at the church here at home in the West, it's pretty evident that uh, com compromise has found its way in. Today, we don't see altars built for false gods, but what we do see is altars built for power and money. And Jesus says that the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And today, we witness the injustices that flows 
from the pursuit of these things. We see people getting trampled over, communities forced into poverty, the marginalized are abused, all for a sake of a dollar or elevation or promotion or status. Right, the temptation is to, to look at these things, power and money, and, and, and when we look at those things, they're, they're, they're good. I haven't met any person who said, I don't want money. I haven't met that person yet. I haven't met any person that said that I don't, I don't want to be respected or have some sort of power. But the reality is that these are temptations that can spiral us out of control, that can lead us to moments of compromising. And we're called to resist the things of these world. We must resist the temptation to fall into these things, very much like the church in Pergamum. They held fast to the name of Jesus, but even if it meant persecution. There's, there's a particular example here uh, by the name of Antipas. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you guys are familiar with Antipas? I figured. Very few of us. And he doesn't go down in like any historic books or he's not mentioned or referenced anywhere else in the Bible. He's not this big, you know, he's not Paul, right? He's not compared to Paul. But Antipas was one who was very faithful. Tradition says that he was a disciple of John and he was martyred. Antipas, he was a bishop of the Pergamum church, a man who lived an obscure and faithful life as he believed, and it was also believed that he had been roasted alive in a bronze bull-like altar at the temple of Diana. Now, the believers in that particular time, the believers in Pergamum, they would have known this and witnessed this but here is something that Jesus says, even in the midst of persecution, this church, they didn't deny their faith, they didn't deny Jesus, but they continued to go forth. And so therefore, Jesus commends them of their faithfulness to that sense. I love, I mean, it's kind of weird, but I kind of love hearing stories like that because what it does is that it boosts up my, my faith. That there is people in this world that would die for the gospel. Even in the face of persecution, remain faithful. But then as I look here, we don't often hear stories like that. There's people that are turning away from the faith. People are turning away from Jesus for things that are far more, are far less significant or far less uh, uh, scary, I shall say. There's things like the fear of being canceled in the eyes of others that are leading people to compromise and conform to the way of this world. And what it does is that it further just kind of reveals our heart that at the end of the day, what we crave is status, fame, popularity, to be accepted by the majority. And we're willing to do whatever it takes in order to get that, even if it means compromising. To be honest, sometimes these things can kind of happen and it start off in a good way where we want to bring people to the Lord. 
We have this uh, spirit like Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that says, to the Jews I become like a Jew in order to win the Jews. But sometimes in order to try to reach the, the, the culture, try to be faithful, sometimes we stumble too far and we begin to compromise all the way to the point in which we are deceived before we even know it. And this is what we are seeing happening at the church of Pergamum. So Jesus addresses and he says, yo, you have been faithful, but now he's going to address the, the issues with this church, which is their compromise. So verse 14, it says this, Jesus continues through John. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put stum a, a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so you also, some of you, hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The way I see Jesus kind of entering into this next part of his address to the church kind of reminds me how my wife confronts me, right? She will say all these good, beautiful things about me. You're so awesome. But then she's like, but this is my problem with you. This is how I see Jesus laying it out before the church of Pergamum. There's all these praises, but then there's this time for critique and correction. And here's the thing. The thing that I really capture from this is that we as a church should be reminded that even though there are some very good things we are doing, there are some things also that we are failing at. And so we are a church that are not yet perfected or perfect, but we are being perfected by the creator. It's kind of what Jesus says in John 15. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He, uh, there, he's referring to God the Father. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. It's that, uh, that it may bear more fruit. So this whole point of Jesus coming and correcting this particular church is that they would bear more fruit. That they would be more of a faithful witness in the midst of their idolatry. Even though the church found praise for not denying their faith, the environment around them had effects on some of those who called themselves followers of Jesus. Over the time, Christians were being led to believe in these false teachings that, they, uh, that, that found idolatry and sexual immorality as acceptable. John refers to two of them, the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Both of these teachings are kind of similar, but I want to expound on one of them is the teaching of uh, Balaam or Balaam. So if, you're under, if you understand kind of the Old Testament narrative, there is this prophet by the name of Balaam. He was instructed by the king of Moab, right, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. If you know the story, essentially, uh, as Balaam tried to curse the people of Israel, he could not actually, like, do it. Every single time he opened up his mouth to try to curse them, he would only speak blessing upon them. And so Balak kind of gave uh, an incentive. It's like, hey, if you're able to do this, then I would give you a reward. And Balaam wanted this reward, and so he kind of got creative. And he said, you know what? The best way to be able to put a curse on Israel is to have them put a curse on themselves. And so he instructed Balak to essentially put prostitutes and all of these stumbling blocks before Israel. And they stumbled, and a curse was placed upon them. 
And so this particular name, Balaam, it's become this household name that New Testament writers like uh, Jude and, 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 and Paul would use in order to refer to a false teacher. It's kind of like how our culture today kind of uses uh, the name Karen, right, to describe a particular type of woman. This is kind of like you don't want to be called like Balaam, right? To be described as this means that you held on to the teachings of Balaam, which means that you have these tendencies towards idolatry and sexual immorality. And in that particular time, the Roman culture, uh, it was highly marked by their sexual immorality. To live in that culture and to hold uh, to, the, to the biblical standards, you were considered strange. To abstain from sexual immorality in that culture, you, you, you really had to swim against the current. And if you're a swimmer, which I'm not, I can't swim. But if you're a swimmer, swimming against the current, I have heard, because I haven't experienced, because I can't swim, that it's very difficult to swim against the current. And so to live in this particular culture and be faithful, it was, it was tough. It was difficult. If you were to place yourself in that particular time, just think about the pressures every single day to try, like, coming from outside sources to have you conform and to compromise. We experience, experience this today. Which leads me to this question that I want us to think about is what powers outside of Jesus are allowing or, or that you are allowing in to dictate your worship and witness? What powers outside of Jesus are we allowing to dictate our worship and witness? Our culture has become widely accepted, uh, accepting of homosexuality. And there's compromising in that. That even though we're called to love everybody and, and step in and do life with these particular uh, people, there has been uh, a bending in, of our understanding of the scriptures and how it addresses homosexuality. Or, or, or the country's views of immigration and, 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 and uh, immigrants, has it compromised the way that we are to call and how the scripture calls us to love the foreigner? Has the corrupt policies that have been placed um, as, as law affected, uh, that has been affecting the vulnerable in our communities, has it compromised our engagement in how we meet that person? What outside powers, outside of Jesus, are we allowing to dictate our worship and our witness? We have to continuously be asking ourselves that question, where do I find myself compromising? Because the reality is that if we sit long enough, there's some areas of our lives in which we can see that we have probably been compromising or slowly kind of walking away. But in the midst of all of that, there's good news. In the midst of our temptation to compromise, in the midst of uh, our struggle, and even if you find yourself in this place of where, man, I've, I've really compromised, I've really strayed away, there's good news here because as Jesus reveals 
the compromise to the church. As Jesus reveals the compromises in which we have made in our own lives, he allows us to be able to see it. And then he provides the opportunity for us to be able to turn from it. In verse 16, Jesus follows up his confrontation or uh, his correction, and he calls them into repentance. The first part of verse 16, he says, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Before we continue, let's just sit in this reality that the creator of the whole entire world who established everything and knitted all things together, the world in which he created beautifully that we have messed up, that God is calling us to turn from our wrong. If we were to compare Jesus to any other king in history, we will see that mercy and grace is not so easily extended. This is a gift. The reality is even though Jesus is filled with grace and mercy, he is also filled with justice and righteousness. He must address the, and judge sin because that is who he is. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is a God who is filled with righteousness, which is the reason why he continues in verse 16. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is why I say that context matters. Because if you read or if, because if you only know God to be this God who is just one who is just going to come and strike down and, and cast judgment and that's all you know him for, then when you read this, you read it with, with fear. But if you see God for who he is as one who is a loving father, when you read this, there is this sense of loving, uh, a loving and concerning like I want the best for you, son. I want the best for you, daughter. Tone in his voice. The majority of the boys that me and Biscuit get to work with, they've all grown up, or a majority of them, they, they've grown up without fathers. And that's a part of my story as well. And they've made some bad decisions, things that they didn't really... They didn't have the, fortunate to, or the fortune to be able to have uh, the wisdom of a father. They end up living up to the ways of culture rather than having a distinct voice of their fathers that is guiding them. It's such a blessing to be able to have someone who is looking out for you and who will confront and correct you when you have gone off course. And this is what we see God, he's doing to all of these churches, but also to the church of Pergamum. And so in verse 17, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And I wanna say it's that, it's those who know him that will hear him. It's those who know him that would hear him. His sheep knows his voice and his sheep knows the loving heart that is attached to that voice. Much like a shepherd who was able to direct his sheep away from danger, Jesus is doing this for us today. In the midst of the false teaching of our time, he speaks that we must stay on course. 
He says to the one who conquers, the one who endures to the end, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The idea here is that Jesus will provide provision. But something that I found very interesting as I was studying and kind of looking up uh, the whole meaning behind these white stones is that in the ancient time, in the ancient world, these white stones, they had many different associations. The white stone, it, it, it could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, or a sign of a acquittal in, the, in, in a court of law, meaning that uh, all the charges or all the things that were held against you have been dropped. And this is the reward portion that we, that we receive after the address. For those who continue on the path, yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's times in which you uh, uh, may compromise and stray away. But as you tune in and you hear the Father's voice and his love that is behind that voice, he says to the one who conquers, there's this sense of the reward is deep fellowship with Jesus. This is what you get, is deep fellowship with Jesus, free of sin because of him and accepted by the Father because of him. And so as I wrap up all of this, this address to Pergamum, there's a couple of things, and I don't know if you like bring the band up. I don't know if you guys do that. The band can now come up. What we see the Spirit doing, what we see Jesus doing in these particular times with these churches is exactly what he does to us personally. He addresses himself. He reveals himself to us. He reaffirms us. He confronts us like the loving Father that he is. And then he calls us into repentance. He calls us into repentance, allowing us to be able to see where we have gone off course, allowing us to be able to turn away from that and to turn to him. And then he reminds us of the true reward that is at hand, because sometimes that can even get foggy at times. Where our reward or, or, or our sight on the true reward gets misplaced on something else that is actually deadly to us. And so he reorients us and aligns us through repentance and shows us the true reward at hand, which is him. And so when we understand the mission of God, it helps us to read these letters clearer. It's God's mission to reconcile everything to himself, to renew the earth and to rid it of sin and destruction. And so a part of that renewal is renewing us. And so I want us to reflect on that this morning. Jesus' address to the church of Pergamum was to address the, the spaces in which they have um, find themselves compromising. 
And so I was told that we have a time of reflection at the end of service. And so I would challenge you to sit and reflect and listen to what the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you based on this address to the, the church in Pergamum. Sit and reflect and allow the Lord to speak. I'll pray and then we'll sit in that time. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, as we are taking the approach as one who is sitting and listening from the couch, God, we hear these letters that you have addressed to the church of Pergamum and we contextualize it to how we are supposed to hear it and respond to it in today's culture in 2022. Father, give us the ears to hear what you are speaking to us, the things in which we're not even thinking about. Father, bring it to the surface, Lord. Lord, help us to be able to turn away from all things that are not of you, all idolatries, all false idols, things that are supposed to bring us happiness, false teachings, things that are just not simply true. Father, help us to be able to turn away from those things and reclaim truth. Father, we thank you for your address. We thank you for your loving heart and the way in which you pursue us. Allow us to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.